Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Interviews with actors, comedians, athletes, neuroscientists, authors, anybody I find interesting. We talk about their careers, successes, failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I think I asked some pretty darn good questions, but don't take it from me. Just ask star of screen and stage, Nick Offerman. It's a great question. It's, a, it's a, an astute question. Um, gosh, that's a good question. That's a great question. Gosh, uh, that, that's a great question. That is a great question. This has been a litany of great questions. I was right <laughs> to agree to agree to this. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Jamel Hill, and my dilemma is how to fold a fitted sheet. Okay, when it comes to people's dilemmas, I sort of pride myself on at least trying to give a decent answer no matter what. Uh, but I watched some videos and I read some step-by-step instructions and all I have to say is it ain't worth it. I mean, just listen to this. Inside out the sheet and place each hand inside the corners directly at the seams. Your hands should now be inside each of the sheet's top two corners. I'm already out. Just fold everything else and shove the fitted sheet on top of the pile and go live your life, Jamel. Honestly, we only have so much time on this planet. That's what she said. (laughs) Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, episode 370, and potentially the final episode. Sort of hard to believe that it might be over. I sure hope it isn't, uh, because I've, I've really loved sharing these hours with all of you. And I love getting to be curious, getting to learn about people and their successes, their expertise, their experiences, their insight, their advice. And I really think this podcast may be the most impactful work I've done in my career when it comes to changing me as a person and benefiting my life beyond my work and my career. Because, you know, what I've learned from exploring topics of neuroplasticity, mental health, gratitude, habit change, um, from hearing from so many different people about the ways that they found themselves in their careers and their purpose, um, the way they grew up, the things that they think. Uh, It's just really made me less judgmental, more patient, more understanding, more happy, grateful, intentional, self-aware, curious, thoughtful, more well-rounded. And I really hope that it's done that for a lot of you, too. Um, In fact, when I told my intrepid producer, Dan Stanzik, that the podcast would be put on hiatus at the least, um, he gave me probably the best feedback I've ever gotten from any colleague about my work Uh, He said that producing and editing this podcast has not only taught him a ton, but made him a better person. And that, of course, that's a rare thing in the sports podcasting world. Uh, There is nothing I like more than sharing the things that I find funny, smart, delightful, informative, moving, inspiring, life-changing. And this podcast was a way for me every week to share those things with other people. So I thank you so much for coming along for the ride. Um, here's a little reminder of what it sounded like when it began. Episode number one. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to the debut episode of That's What She Said. I'm Sarah Spain. Thanks for listening. Thanks for clicking and finding this podcast Uh, The podcast was at one point going to be named No Filter, which is sort of the story of my life, not only because I rarely seem to have a beat between what comes into my head and what I say aloud, uh, but also because I'm a pretty open person. I share a lot of personal stories. I'm certainly not one to shy away from opinions. So hopefully this podcast will be a little more insight into me, some great interviews with people that I find interesting and admirable, 
um, and some funny and random anecdotes that I've gathered over my years of shenanigans in Hollywood, working for ESPN, living in Chicago, um, and all that good stuff. So uh, the theme will be no filter. The title will remain. That's what she said. Now, you may remember from that episode that my very first guest was a special colleague and friend who I call my career fairy godmother, someone who stuck her neck out for me to get a shot on TV at ESPN and changed my career forever. I respect her immensely. I learn from her regularly. And I remember I, I often replaced her when she was on vacation for her show. But the few times we worked together on her show, I would sit in the pre-show meeting, either for Numbers Never Lie or His and Hers, and I would marvel at her breadth and depth of sports knowledge. And it was such a lesson for me on the work that I would need to put in to be great and to do this job. She was smart, funny, kind, authentic, and wholly herself, both in the meetings and on the show, at the ESPYs, at the after parties. It really gave me permission to be myself which was and remains the key to everything in life and in my career. Jamel Hill is a powerhouse, and I am now even more impressed by her success after reading her book and reading about her life and all the things that she went through as a child. So today she joins the show for a third time, joining uh, Michael Schur as a part of the Three Timers Club. She talks about her book, Uphill, which details the drug addiction that she grew up with. Both her mother and her estranged father struggled with uh, heroin abuse and other. Um, also talked about the sexual violence around her as her child. Her mother was both molested by an adult relative and twice raped. And Jamel herself managed to escape a rape attempt as a child. Um, but despite her upbringing, she had dreams of a different life and she's worked her ass off to go get it. So we talk about the book, mostly the family stuff, because we spent a lot of time talking about ESPN and the work side of things in her first two appearances on the pod. You can go back and listen to them. I, I recommend it. The first one features a lengthy story about a lesbian baby shower in a strip club. Uh, and the second gets into some of the tough times she dealt with shortly before her departure from ESPN, standing up to the former president on Twitter, speaking up when it mattered most to her, and the response that she got uh, both from friends, family members, and uh, enemies, I suppose. Uh, just made sense to have her come back as my very first guest to be on the very last episode, at least for this iteration of the podcast. And uh, I'm proud to say that during our conversation, I managed to avoid mentioning and bragging about being mentioned in the book twice. Oops, I said it. <laughs> uh, enjoy this awesome conversation with the very awesome Jamel Hill. That's what she said. <laughs> so since this may potentially could be might be as my co-host jason fitz would say might could um the last podcast here for that that's what she said show what better way to go out than to give jamel hill the three timers jacket it's in the mail and close out the show the way we started not with a lesbian baby shower in a strip club story that's been done you can go find that one uh, but by chatting with our good friend, Jamel Hill, my fairy career godmother, uh, my sister from another mister, who's going to help us potentially maybe might be, could be, <laughs> end this whole shebang, at least here where it lives. Uh, I went back to the first time we talked, Jamel, and I was, so I, I read your incredible book, Uphill, and I was thinking, man, she really held back that first interview. She didn't tell me <laughs> any of this shit. And I like on this podcast, I'm always asking people like, what were you like as a kid? And what was going on? And what did your parents do? She didn't tell me any of this. 
So I went back to the first podcast and I was like, she must have just been like real vague about it. And then I was like, I didn't ask her a damn thing about anything before like ESPN. We had a mm-hmm. great chat. There was a lot of good stuff in there. But I think it must have evolved later on in the podcast that I started with like people's childhoods and youth. So we skipped a lot of stuff. Dang. Let's talk about this book. And I want to start with the decision to write it because you are not only opening up about yourself, but your whole family. How did you feel about that? And did you reach out and ask their permission? No, I didn't really ask their permission. And, you know, I I guess I'll answer kind of what was your first question, which is like why I decide to write a memoir to begin with. And to be perfectly honest, Sarah, I did this because of money. Not that I... (laughs) I mean, I, it was just, I gotta be honest. It's like, right. I, it's a job. it was, <laughs> well, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't that it wasn't as in, I need the money, but it was because there was a considerable amount of interest in my memoir in the publishing world. And so my book went to auction, which means that it was bidded on by several different publishers. And the interest was so strong that it drove me to write it. Even though while I always envisioned myself writing a book, I never wanted to write about myself. And my literary agent, David Larabelle, shout out to you. He um, he told me, hey, if you want to eventually write fiction novels, this is a great entry point into doing that. And there's just so much interest in your story, your background. And I was a bit surprised by that. I mean, I know people know me as a public figure, if you will, but that doesn't, everybody that's a public figure, you're not necessarily interested in reading 250, 300 pages Mm -hmm. about them. So once I made the decision to indeed write this memoir, I said, well, there's only one way to do it. And, you know, you can't leave any plays on the field, so to speak. Like you got to really lay it out there because I know people have read memoirs by public figures and celebrities, and they probably felt like they were either holding back or trying to make themselves look good or, um, you know, or they've they interviewed really... them on a podcast and then yeah. been like, you're not going to answer any questions about any Correct. of your celebrity relationships, which is the whole reason <laughs> right. I read your gosh darn book front to exactly. back and nothing was in there. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I, I didn't want it to be that case. I wanted to make sure that I really exposed myself. And yes, by, um, you know, kind of by proxy, what happens is I expose my entire family as well. And no, I didn't ask any of them for permission because the way I thought about it, while I wanted to be certainly respectful, I had to be truthful. Mm. And if they couldn't accept that truth, then I don't know, they just got to be mad. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so before it came out, then, did you talk to, for instance, your mother about what was going to be in it and how how truthful it would be? I, I interviewed my mother extensively for this book. So this is done with her full cooperation. And because it was important that I make sure one, I was remembering things accurately. Two, I knew there was probably a lot more I didn't know. And there were, because there were a lot of questions I probably had not asked over the years, even though, um, you know, my mother and her struggles with uh, drug addiction were something that were very transparent. So it wasn't like she hid it from me or anything like that. And it wasn't like, I didn't know she was going through it. I mean, just off of what I observed would have been enough. But I wanted more in terms of understanding exactly how she got to certain breaking points. And it was a very delicate process there because it it involved me interviewing my mother about the worst moments of her life. And that is not easy to do, whether somebody's your mother or not. Mm. And I wound up finding out a lot of information that I didn't know, things that had happened 
when I was at school, things that happened early in her life that I had no clue had gone on. And I do think the positive result of that is that it helped me see her as a much fuller person than I already did. And while I had forgiven my mother a long, long time ago, this allowed me to extend her even more grace than I already mm. had. I think we see our parents as not full human beings until much later in life when we recognize that they're just like us and our friends and everyone else. They're trying their best. They're doing their best. And when we start to understand that, it changes our recollections of things from the past. And in the case of your mom, I can absolutely see how needing to understand the struggle to to raise you and to put food on the table and pay bills and everything else, plus the trauma she'd been through. And I think that's what, uh, you know, really got to me so much about the first like half even of the book talking about your childhood is just the incredible trauma that goes back generations. So when you say something like I had a dream for my life that my grandmother and my mother never really had a chance for, it's not the same as when other people say that. And it's really just about money or um, opportunity. It's about the trauma that stopped them at every pivot and turn that might have helped them escape some of those choices. And I want to go back to your grandmother because it comes a little later in the book when we've already learned a lot about her, especially her being a voracious reader, a keeper of encyclopedias, a curious <laughs> and really intellectual woman that she so often chose men who treated her terribly. And I wonder before she passed, if you ever really understood and reconciled that strange choice that she made three times. No, I didn't. And if there was one of the many things that I learned from this book, and it's something that I've told people when they've asked me, what do you want the takeaway to be? Well, one of them is that when your people, the people that are close to you, the people that raised you, the people that really grew up in your life, ask them about everything in their lives. Because I really wish she were alive as I was writing this book, because I would have asked that question. And as I'm writing, I'm like, why didn't I ever think to ask mm -hmm. my grandmother this question about why was she constantly choosing these dirtbags who were men when she was such a strong, brave, courageous, outspoken woman? I was like, I don't even this doesn't make sense to me. But I will say this it is, you, you know, often, Sarah, in our spaces that we unfortunately have to talk a lot about sexual violence and uh, about, you know, abusive relationships because they're all over in the sports world. And I know sometimes, uh, cause you get accused of this too, people think that I go too hard when it comes mm -hmm. to the issue. But if they knew my, my background, they would know why I did. Because yeah. I saw the women in my life who are very close, who have been physically abused, sexually abused, mentally abused. And mm -hmm. so um, that was really, uh, I think seeing that, strange choice as that my grandmother made helped me understand the cycle of abuse and what it's really about because it doesn't matter how smart you are it doesn't matter how accomplished you are it doesn't even matter how outspoken that you are that you just like anybody else can easily find yourself in an abusive relationship mm -hmm. because there's there might be something inside of you that's broken or something inside of you that feels like it's not worthy that you're not worthy. Mm -hmm. And I think there was some of that there because, you know, my grandmother has some abusive, I didn't necessarily go in deep in this into the book because I, I didn't, I couldn't verify everything um, since our family is like really dwindling and it's quite small now. So there's nobody I could go to to like attest to the information. But I remember her specifically telling me about um, one of the, the elder women in her family. It was either her aunt or, um, 
uh, it was somebody else like that was really close to her that she had to go live with in West Virginia for a while. And this woman was quite abusive to mm. her. And I think because, and this is when she was young. And so she tried to like literally crush her spirit. Yeah. And I think because of that, it led to her being maybe drawn to people who did the same thing. Yeah, there's so much research into people who repeat cycles of abuse with the intent to change it, but don't always succeed and instead find themselves repeating those cycles. I love the honesty and the gentleness you took in trying to then explain and understand finally why she aligned herself late in life with a simple man who didn't <laughs> challenge her, who she was yes. in charge of, who mm -hmm. you didn't understand why he, he wasn't an intellectual equal to her, but you understood finally maybe that she just wanted someone to be kind. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There's so many ways that uh, trauma transfers from one generation to the next. And in the case of your grandmother, um, she didn't protect your mother. And up until the end, you tell a really powerful story about a Thanksgiving after you had made some money at ESPN and you treated your mom and your grandmother to a great Thanksgiving trip. You rented a big house and you felt like you had made it. And you got to have these really honest conversations, which uh, can be very hard for families and result in some <laughs> tough times, but can also sort of heal some long held wounds and finally get some honesty. And I would love for you to share the conversation that you had and that you didn't get that closure that you'd hoped, even though you went on to have a nice Thanksgiving and you guys all were able to spend time together there, you didn't get the answers that you hoped from your grandma and neither did your mom. No. Uh, so the, 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 the wedge that was between my mother and my grandmother was the fact that my grandmother's brother, um, who would be my great uncle, he sexually abused my mother from the time she was four until she was aged 11. And the only reason it stopped is because my uncle, my mother's uh, brother, uh, you know, pretty much told him that if he did it again, she he would kill him. And even though my mother had, had told my grandmother this abuse was happening, my grandmother chose not to believe her. And then she took the additional step of telling other people in the family that my mother was a liar. Hmm. And because of that, they had just an unopened wound that sometimes got very wide. And it just, even though there was a lot of love there, my mother never abandoned my grandmother. She never stopped talking to my grandmother. And until that year we lived in Texas, my mother always lived within 15 minutes from my grandmother and became her, her caretaker later on in her life as her health issues compounded. So my idea was just to go to Palm Springs, let's have this vacation, uh, because it, it was starting to feel like, I don't know how much time we all have left together. And that was kind of the motivation behind me doing it. And so we are there and my grandmother and I are having a, a conversation about the past. And I just 
I had to finally ask her, like, why didn't you protect my mother? Or why did you, why did this happen? Why did it have to be this way? was really the topic of our, our conversation. And my grandmother goes into this very long, painful, um, you know, diatribe about how she never wanted kids. And um, she seemed to be very angry. And that's why I write so much of the book or, or did write in the book about, she felt like the life she got was not the life she wanted. And, you know, my grandmother was born in 1929. There wasn't a lot of agency for women, period. Much even even lesser agency for a black woman, especially one that grew up in the South. And so she felt like she had to do all these things to confirm to what she was or or, or to basically to be what the world expected a black mm-hmm. woman from the South to be, which is like, you're supposed to get married. I don't care how smart you are. School is not for you. Education is not for you. Here is your life. It's already planned out. And that created a level of resentment and anger yeah. in her. And I think because of that, and by the way, the way she felt about my mother's father, who was also kind of a disgusting human being, then it, my mother got the brunt of all that, of that. I mean, both my mother and actually all of her kids did. They got some level of that anger, that resentment. You know, as I wrote, she's a, she was a functioning alcoholic. So they got all of that mm-hmm. trauma got poured into them. And so when we are in Palm Springs and we're having this conversation, it was really heartbreaking for me, but it was more heartbreaking for my mother who heard the same conversation and just was in complete tears. And she told me later on after the trip was over that looked like she really, that it really broke her heart. I mean, that's probably the simplest terms that I could put it, but to know that your mother didn't seem like she was sorry for the way, mm-hmm. or wanted to atone or acknowledge in any way in the ways that she let you down. Uh, I can't imagine what that feels like because for what, all the things that me and my mother have been through, the one thing she has always been is accountable. And I don't have to, I mean, if anything, I told her to stop apologizing. Right. 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 I was right. like, it's, it's good. We good. Like, you, right. you don't need to keep doing this. But, but that was allowed, that was what allowed the path to forgiveness. Yeah. With my grandmother, it wasn't that way. And so even when she died, it was just, um, it, it just still was very unhealed, even though my mother took care of her to her last breath. It's hard to see how that manifests in your mom's life. She starts trying drugs at a really young age because of the abuse that she's enduring and because people are not listening to her or believing her. She eventually decides life away from home is a better choice than being with someone who didn't protect her and doesn't believe her. And then over time, um, she goes in and out of, painkiller addiction, heroin use, um, and you move a lot as a kid. I wonder, because I know only the outspoken, hilarious, super, super uh, just easy to get along with Jamel. When you were a kid, every time you went somewhere new, did you make friends easily? Did you find your people easily? You you know, it's so funny because I'm thinking about you saying I moved a lot in context of what my mother went through my mother they got evicted three times in one year that never oh, happened yes yeah. right so i was like i actually didn't move that much i mean in my mind well, i'm thinking this yeah right? in my mind yeah. i'm thinking this. I was like, well, it wasn't that bad but, and, then I'm, and now as i'm going over it i was like yeah we started here we moved to texas came back got the house foreclosed on moved to the west side of detroit yeah and, you know there was only a couple places after that but to answer your question i mean even though um like all kids i go through a period where i was on the shire side for sure but i'd never had a problem making friends big reason why sports that was why mm-hmm. and i was the neighborhood tomboy so 
I was always trying to mix it up and and playing football in the street and um, even us doing backflips off of garages on the dirty mattresses, <laughs> like all all kind of very tomboyish things, you know, playing tag, you know, all all kinds of stuff. And so sports, as you know, is such a pathway to um, people getting to know you. It's a pathway to friendship. You understand the teamwork, certain dynamics yeah. and relationships. And I started playing softball very early. I mean, I started probably playing softball when I was like maybe nine or 10 years old. And so there was a built-in team environment there and a community for me there. And, you know, when I got to high school, I'm still playing, you know, fast pitch softball. So more community, more tribe. And then once I got involved in journalism, it was the same way. It's like another tribe. So I was yeah. always able to find my tribe, but sports was a significant pathway into me doing that. And as you know, I think the one thing that sports gives, especially young girls, is that it gives you confidence, positive body image, all these extraordinary benefits that you don't even realize at the time. And especially if you're, you know, somewhat good at sports, it's like it boosts your confidence. And mm -hmm. so I never was somebody who shrank. Um, I might have been at times on the quieter side, but I think sports really helped me find myself. And um, on top of that, I think it honestly kept away a lot of the more toxic traits in me that could have developed. Like what? Well, I mean, I think while I was angry as a kid, and I even write about this in, in, the, mm -hmm. in the book, it was funny is like, so I still have a lot of my old journals from those times. And I was really, when I was reading the back as I was writing it, I was like, oh my God. He was like, you are just a depressed mess. Like what is going <laughs> With on? a potty mouth. <laughs> I know. And a potty mouth on top of that. And so it was just like really just kind of funny to look back in hindsight, but that was, that was where my anger was going was in those pages. Yeah. And so I think if I had not had not just sports, but those journals, then that anger might have been able to show up in other ways. You know, maybe it shows up in me um, feeling the need to be a bully or physically violent with people or, you know, because a lot of the neighborhoods I grew up in, that's how you settle things. Right. right. And so maybe it shows up in that regard. But I was never the one to, to pick on uh, people or pick fights or that kind of thing. So I think the combination of having an outlet to express myself and having another outlet in sports allowed me to develop a more laid back, um, you know, peaceful approach to life. Your stepfather, James Morgan, is the one you talk about teaching you sports and sort of raising you in a sort of fatherly sense, more so than your father, who was has gone for a long time. And when he came back, you didn't really know him well. There's a fraught relationship with James as well when he comes back into your life. Um, but your mother finds out and he tells your mother that he's bisexual. And I I love in the book how there are several moments throughout where you address the way you thought about things before and how you see them differently now. And you don't do it heavy handed and you don't do it preachy. And I wonder if when you were writing, you were considering the people who might still feel that way about LGBTQ plus people or about religion or about the things that you say you've shifted so deeply on because um, you certainly don't wag a finger at people who might still share those thoughts that you used to have. You, you, But you very definitely make clear that those thoughts are not the way. <laughs> yeah. I, I, no, I thought it was um, important uh, because I, I do think people may, you know, hear me in this space or in some of the spaces that I'm in and they may get the wrong impression that I've always been this evolved. And I think it's important to share 
maybe where you used to be mm. so that people at least feel hopeful that like if they are harboring some of these beliefs and these prejudices and maybe there's a part in them that really wants to let them go and sometimes especially with the way um you know we dialogue in this country people feel lectured to a lot they feel people pointing fingers at them a lot and and this is not to absolve them and say there should be no accountability they absolutely should but there is part of us that needs to allow a certain evolution to take place depending on you know how someone grew up now yeah the thing is you know i, I will have to say there it's a very different time as you know between now and how we talked about that community in the 80s and the, mm -hmm. in, in much of the 90s, right? It's like, it's way different, like where it was a part of the understood language and conversation that you denigrate people from this community or that they're, it's fine to make them the butt of jokes. It's fine that like, we, we, we probably, a lot of the favorite comedians or comedic acts or yeah. even movies going back to look at them is oh, a tough watch my all-time yeah. favorite delirious with eddie murphy there's a couple yeah. bits in there where i'm like oh i don't remember that oh yeah or, or in raw like in raw, yeah. like it's just mm. you're like oh yeah. <laughs> you know but what i do appreciate is the fact that you know case in point about evolution eddie murphy is even said like i was he was like i was 100 I was stupid. Like we yeah. never said that yeah. today. Well, that's a, that's the truth. Is like the the offering up of Would you like to evolve? Would you like to learn and change your mind? And then be thankful and grateful when people do, instead of especially with social media now, this desire to just stubbornly dig in, regardless of what facts you get or things that you learn. Just be like, nope, I said what I said, and I'm sticking to it. Like, like that's much worse. To. Right. Yeah, it's, much it's, worse. Like saying, it's like saying that, you know, you don't want to evolve your palate from when you were 12 and like peanut <laughs> right. butter and jelly. Right. And Chicken like, fingers you know, are bust. Right. That's it. <laughs> you know That's what I'm it. saying? If you're eating ravioli out of can. Like, no, yeah. no, you want to actually graduate to the point where you have medium and medium well steaks like you do. But there you go. Okay. There you go. <laughs> so uh, I think it's the same way. And I also, you know, thought it was important and describing, um, you know, what happened uh, with my uh, first stepfather. And then uh, obviously, as you know, from reading uh, with him eventually contracting HIV, that I, I thought it was in, important, uh, you know, to show people that uh, sometimes there could be an unintended uh, cost of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, as I'm writing about this in, in present day versus how I may have thought of it then, or even with the conversation around that his bisexuality really was, is, you know, I think in very, in very many ways, like he was trapped in a life, he wanted part of it, but he didn't, you know, there was, there was, it, it was a very complicated dynamic. And dangerous. You know, he was a, yeah. And dangerous, right. He was a great, um, he was a great father to me. And I, I think he wanted to have children, but, you know, if you're, a bisexual man, and I, I think he was just a gay man, to be honest with you. It's like when you're a gay man during that time, the pathway to that kind of life is just not there. Yeah. And so I think that is what really engineered um, him sort of turning to drugs as well, is that I think he just, he could not find that sense of peace and acceptance uh, the way he wanted to. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Ooh, my favorite word of the moment is obtuse. It's a line in a movie, but I'm struggling right now to think of what movie it is. Shawshank it's, Redemption, Jamel. Boom, that's what it is. Obtuse, not pointed or acute, exceeding 90 degrees, but less than 180 degrees. 
lacking sharpness or quickness of sensibility or intellect, difficult to comprehend, not clear or precise in thought or expression. Obtuse is from the early 15th century from Latin obtusus, blunted or dull. It was used as a sense of sort of stupid or not sensitive or perceptive starting in 1500 and in the 1560s used in geometry in reference to a plane angle greater than a right angle. I happen to love calling people obtuse, especially on Twitter when people are arguing straw men or willfully misinterpreting an argument or a discussion. Intentionally obtuse is a go-to for me. And by the way, you heard my producer there, Dan Stanzik, who is never obtuse. He chimed in with the very on-point recognition that it was a Shawshank redemption. Uh, I am so grateful to Dan for his help with this podcast. Never late, never flakes, never forgets. Always helpful, always supportive, and had such kind words about our work together. Um, I multiple times would message people at the radio audio side of things and just say, Dan is a superstar. He rocks. So big thanks to Dan. Speaking of great words, you're going to learn today. The word of the week is, I figure a fitting way to close out my word of the week, at least for now, is with a pair of words from a podcast fave, wordswoman Susie Dent, who I still would love to have on one day. Uh, the words of the week, thanks to Susie, are shot clog from the 16th century, an unwelcome member of a group who is only tolerated because they're buying the next drink. This is an exceedingly useful word. <laughs> I think we've all been there. They're not exactly adding value. Maybe they're even annoying, but they keep foot in the bill and open up the good stuff. Shot clog. I love it. Uh, the next word, also from the 16th century and of a similar mind, quaffed A one-word announcement that it's the time or the season for a drink. Sort of a fancier way of saying it's beer 30. <laughs> a superior way of saying it's Miller time. <laughs> so in a sentence. On the occasion of this final pod, in honor of etymologists and word anthropologists everywhere, with gratitude from me and from those equally as enamored with the origins and meanings of obscure words, it's quaffed. Now let's get back to the interview. I've always been incredibly impressed with you, but after reading this, it seems all the more sort of unlikely and unfathomable that you would come from all of this trauma and find yourself at Michigan State and then writing you know, the first, at, well, the only woman in the country with a with a newspaper sports column, Black woman, and have this incredible success at ESPN and write this memoir and everything else. And I don't mean that in a short-sighted way, that it's, it's impossible to come from tough times and find uh, greatness and success, but that it's so difficult to escape a lot of the cycles that had come before you. To what do you attribute your ability not to become a part of that story? with drugs or abuse or otherwise? Well, um, it, you know, one of the things I write about is my very complicated religious <laughs> background and also my complicated relationship with God, which I always say, my fault, not his. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so uh, what I would say is like, I do believe that there was a, um, got some godliness placed on my life that allowed me to do that. The other part, and this also I think is probably con complicated for people to think about is that, yes, even though I had a mother going through her addiction and even though, um, you know, the adults in my life were going and fighting a lot of personal demons and even with my, um, you know, kind of fractured relationship with my own father that got better over, over time as we got to know each other, none of them ever 
ever preached to me anything but finding and having a better life than the one I currently had. They were always on me about my grades, my mom especially. I mean, it was understood I was going to college, even though at that point she didn't go to college. But it was a dream she wanted for herself. And I think she was thinking about her own childhood and the fact, as as I wrote about, that she really wanted to be a doctor. Mm. She just, nobody around her encouraged her to do that. She didn't have, she couldn't see it, right? Mm. And so because of that, she underachieved greatly. And my mama is like really good at science and math and stuff. All the things I am not. Yeah. <laughs> so so it was just like, yeah, so it was just like, okay. So she saw, I think, how she didn't have the proper support for the things she wanted for herself. And she wanted to break a particular cycle by making sure, even though she didn't understand anything about sports writing or working for a newspaper or the media business, she understood nothing about it. But she was going to support me and with everything that she had. So because of that, I was able to envision a life that was greater. You know, a lot of times that the people you know, that I know um, in this country that went through similar or even more challenging circumstances than I did. A lot of reasons they don't make it is because they don't know that they deserve better because no one's told them that they Mm -hmm. do. Everybody's told them the opposite. Like, this is what you, this is the best you can expect. Right. Or why do you think you deserve better than this? Or why do you think you deserve it? Correct. And I had a lot of adults in my life that never allowed me to think that way. And so I didn't know it was probably a pretty crazy dream for a young black girl from Detroit to dream about being a mm-hmm. sports writer or, you know, to go away to a place like, you know, Michigan State and to, to think about what my life would look like beyond Detroit. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to think that way. Yeah. Well, and I think also you talk about your grandmother admitted she did not want kids and the resentment for them certainly must have played a role in how she raised them and what she but she taught them to believe about themselves and what they deserved. Your mother, on the other hand, had you quite young, but really wanted you. And you write in the book about how you believe that unconditional love she never got from her mom ended up being something she sought out from her daughter instead. And if you view it through that lens, then it makes a whole lot of sense that she would want for you completely different things and react to her own trauma and how it might affect you completely differently than your grandma did with her. And that manifested itself in ways where, you know, your mother, unfortunately, not only was uh, molested as a child, but had been sexually assaulted other times in her life and was incredibly protective of you to the point that you were able to get yourself out of a potential situation like that because you you knew what was happening and you, mm-hmm. you knew that you needed to escape. Um, but the same with the drugs to the point where she she brought you crack and showed it mm-hmm. to you. And mm-hmm. said, you know, while probably potentially high on it, don't do this. Right. Now, that sometimes works with parents, but usually yeah, it's, it's it's do as I say, not as I do doesn't work. Why it did it work? Doesn't. Why did it work? Um, Because I was scared of my mother. That's probably why. <laughs> she I wasn't mean, a great totally... role model for like, this works. This is the yes. path. Yeah. <laughs> right. I was like, I was scared of her. And I was like, mm, if she say not to do it, I believe her. Because I was just <laughs> like, what? <laughs> you know, and it was, it was so, it was just so terrifying. And I, I think I was asked this on a, in another interview. They were like, well, you were never attracted to, you know, doing any hardcore drugs. I was like, hell no. Are you kidding me? I was like, not in that circle. I was like, something like that break out at a party and that person's never going to see me again. I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. So no, I mean, I know it may in under, well, even then, I can't even say under today, that seems to be a very 
um, a, a very bold parenting <laughs> way to parent. But, you know, that was kind of how it was. It's like, yeah, my mother was like, all the stuff you see me going through, do not do the same thing. And even when it came to dealing with some of uh, the, the unsavory men in her life, it was the same way. She was like, you see how I have to do this to put food on the table? Mm. Don't ever do this. Don't yeah. ever allow yourself to be in a situation where, you know, a man has a certain amount of control over you, be it financially, be it emotionally, physically, don't ever put yourself in these situations. Like you don't want to, you don't want to be where I am. And I took that to heart. You know, I, there was nothing cause she didn't make it seem cool. And she didn't make it seem like, oh, it's great that we have to bounce on and off of welfare or great that like, I have to, you know, have these men in, in my life who I know are destroying me on one day, but yet because they're able to make sure that we have groceries and the mm -hmm. lights stay on, on the other, like she wasn't, she wasn't making that seem cool at all. Right. And so for me, I wanted to go the entire opposite direction that she was going. You mentioned in the book that, and it's sort of an offhanded comment that your husband has even sort of brought up the, those relationships and, and, and the, the maybe unwillingness to be always vulnerable because of some of all of this. Um, and then that your mom told you to go to therapy and that you were angry. I think it was a valid time in your life to be angry. It was after some pretty high profile tweets and some job related <laughs> things and some things that, that you know, can make someone be in a, in a bit of a funk, if you will. Um, I wonder when you wrote this book and you went through all of this interviewing your mom and talking about your childhood and the start of your career and all of the things that led up to you eventually meeting your husband and creating this life that you have. Um, if you realized that there were stories you had told yourself that were wrong, because the stories we tell about ourselves ultimately can decide how we view everything. And sometimes we realize, oh, we've been telling ourselves something that's not entirely true or that's led us astray. And I wonder whether it's the vulnerability that your husband references or the anger your mom did, if going back and rethinking everything has changed your perspective on any of it. So I, I don't think anger was the issue, <laughs> okay? <laughs> uh, and, you know, this is something I've talked to my therapist about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've even told her the same thing. I was like, my mother thinks I'm angry. And I was like, I'm angry. She thinks I'm angry. That's, the <laughs> that's, that's what I'm angry about. But what it is, and, and this is what I was able to identify through therapy. Um, and even some of this came out in when my mother and I did Red, Red Table Talk, is um, I am setting boundaries, have set boundaries. My mother doesn't appreciate those boundaries sometimes. Mm -hmm. And you know, mothers, they don't do well with boundaries. They just don't. Okay. And the part of the reason I think I set some of those boundaries, maybe some of it was to like protect myself a little bit, but other parts of it is that I did not want to repeat childhood patterns and those childhood patterns of like not feeling like I had a voice or agency or say, and having to live under a certain level of, not just surveillance, that's not the word that I'm looking for, but just living under this cloak, this cloud, like I didn't, right. just can't, you know, do it. And so my, um, my mother, the friction that was in our relationship was because, you know, she raised me to be an independent woman who had who could think for herself and wasn't afraid to raise her voice and be outspoken and she has to deal with that woman yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like you raised me this way and now you complain that i am this way yeah. so 
you know, it's it's sort of the the a general push and pull that I think that happens with mothers and daughters that is not based off anger. It's based off the fact that I'm an adult. No, you can't talk to me that way. Right. And right. then if I say that, then I'm being angry. I'm like, no, I'm just establishing the fact right. that I'm right. not 10. You can't talk to me this way. So that well, was what it was. <laughs> it's interesting, too, because um, there's a lot of research into coping mechanisms that people adopt in their youth that they sometimes carry into life, even when it's not necessary anymore. So if you, because of your relationship with your mom and always having to sort of tiptoe around and figure out, is she high right now? She angry? Is she going to be um, angry with me? Is, is, are we in any danger? All of that. Um, you now want to be in control with her instead of the opposite. You don't want to, right. to react to her at every second. You want to decide what things are going to look like for you and then establish boundaries so that you can protect that control that you have, um, which is a very healthy thing, but tough, like you said, for some people. It's some the, people don't like boundaries. <laughs> it's, 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 it's tough for them to accept. By the way, quick aside, if you want to learn more about the importance of setting boundaries and how to do it with care and respect, uh, go to We Can Do Hard Things, episode 143. Spectacular. Super worth your time. Okay, back to the conversation. But I think the other part, too, is that um, my mother and, and, and my mother was really searching as I, I think a lot of this happened, especially at ESPN you know, because my profile is being raised to such a high level. And then obviously after the controversy with Trump, then it goes to another level. And this was during a time where my mother was really trying to figure out her place in my life, which was very interesting to me because to me, your place is you're my mother. Like that's like, that's established, right? But, you know, I we hadn't lived in the same state in God knows how long. And she started to feel disconnected. And because she felt disconnected, from me, then her instinct is to just push harder. Mm. Her pushing harder is gonna make me react a certain right. way. And so it's like, we were in this cycle of like never ending, you know, um, kind of tension in our relationship. I mean, we certainly would have plenty of good moments, but whenever I felt like she was forcing the issue, all it would do is just annoy me, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Uh -huh. But I realized that she was forcing the issue. I realized now, and, and this is what came out on, on Red Table Talk is because she feels like she missed a lot. And, you know, it's it's odd because like I don't and then I had to understand that this very this small but significant difference. My mother was there through every step of my life. I never not. Well, only briefly when I was in high school did I not live with my mother. And that was mm -hmm. really by mutual uh, decision. But every you know graduation play like she was there. But there's a difference between being there and being present. Mm -hmm. And I think what she felt was that she was not present enough mm -hmm. in my life. And because of that, because the drugs took so much of her spirit, her mind, and uh, at times, you know, just her physical health, because of that, she missed out on moments. And had she had those moments, maybe our relationship would be in a much different place than it is now. And that's not to say that the place is bad. It's not that at all. It's just different. That's that's it. And so th that was what she was dealing with and has she hasn't released it. Like, yeah. I don't know how to tell her how to forgive herself. Right. She some days she does and some days she doesn't. And it's just it's just a, a pinball with that. But I'm like, I have forgiven you. I'm just waiting right. on you to catch up. 
Well, and I think like you said, it actually can negatively affect the present if you're so caught up in fixing the past, because what sometimes happens, I have a friend whose parent is the same. His dad was not always present, though he was there. And later in life started to regret that their relationship wasn't as close as he wished it had been. And then was like full court press nonstop. And it's like, that's not making me feel closer to you. Right. We can reconcile that things didn't go the way they should have before. But now the guilt trip about why aren't we closer? And why don't you see me all the time? And why don't you call me every day? That's not making me want to do that. Right. Um, It's remarkable how much what happens in our childhood dictates so much of who we become later and what we do. And in your book, you talk about how part of your ambition stems from the idea that people let you down, but your career never did. And career is really just a substitute for myself. Is, <laughs> but right. it's true. You're right. It's no, true. You're exactly your career was right. under your control. It right. was, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to apply for this. I'm going to take this internship. I'm going to do this job. I'm going to write. I mean, some of the columns and stories you talk about writing at such a young age already revealed this incredible ability to speak to deeper issues than the average young person would be writing when they cover some of that stuff. And, you know, I wonder specifically, you wrote a column on OJ at Michigan State and how the 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 desire from the black community to defend him, even in the face of what was clearly a a guilt uh, was embarrassing to the black community and didn't serve to help race dynamics. That's a really heavy thing to take on at that age and to understand that you will get pushback from the black community while simultaneously you're getting all tons of shit from white people for stuff you write. <laughs> Otherwise, why do you think you had that ability to stand in those storms even at that young age? I don't know what it is because, you know, you've hung out with me, Sarah. It's like, I just have this ability to piss off every group. I have no idea how this is possible. I'm me like, too. I, I think it's right. just being a woman with opinions. Yo, that, you're right. Aren't uh, we just the a, worst? Uh, there's a cross section of people who don't really like that. So Yeah, and don't so like yeah. us. We got a real big, yeah, th- that, that Venn diagram has a big overlap. Ooh, yeah. I'm telling you. So, um. So, yeah, you know, it it was funny because and I make this joke now because I'm I'm involved with the MSU Black Alumni Association. I'm like, oh, y'all was trying to light me up before. (laughs) (laughs) Not the alumni, but some of the people that that are now alumni. But, you know, I think what it is, is that I I have I win the bad timing award all the time because had I just waited, Sarah, to write that column, I promise you, yeah. it would never have generated mm-hmm. that level of vitriol that it or did. certain I, tweets. I see what I'm saying. I was two years early. You're ahead of your time. You're ahead, ahead of, of your time. time. I am, and so when I'm writing these things, and I'm like, no, we should not be lionizing somebody who really doesn't care yeah. to be associated with us. But I will say this. I mean, the one part I wouldn't I certainly wouldn't change that opinion because I'm just like we we can we can do better than that. Yeah. But I do have a you know, I have a much different and broader understanding of the criminal justice system as a whole. So I get it now. But it was just the rush to make him some kind of hero. I was like, y'all realize what this man is. Right. Right. right? Uh, Okay. I I think we can find better. I think I think we can find a better way to send the same message in a better way. Right. you know, person, if you will. But it was a good uh, lesson for me to learn that in, in college. And I, I still contend I probably gener- I'm I'm sure I have the record for most generated hate mail by any columnist <laughs> in state news history. There's nobody Amazing. coming close to me. Amazing. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, what it was is that I, I, I make the mistake of thinking these things are obvious and they are not. No, so but when I, <laughs> that's what I respect about you though, is that you have such a keen understanding of what's right and wrong and it will not be swayed by the, the, the potential consequences of saying it. And, yeah. and, and I like that you think it's obvious. That's how I feel a lot of the time. I'm like, what, like, what don't you get? And then yeah, right. 8,000 hate tweets later, I'm like, shit. I was like, maybe oh, that was, maybe. Oh, that was pretty was, clear. I mean, that was. happened to me with, that happens to me every time with Dave Chappelle when I try to say, <laughs> okay, so you guys are totally cool with completely hating on the trans community while simultaneously arguing that like any injustice against one is injustice against like all of the, right. We cannot in any way see marginalized groups as, uh, and uh, the answer is uh, no, it's not as obvious to everyone else. And <laughs> no, uh, good luck to my menchies <laughs> um, or Kyrie and anti-Semitism. It's like, nope, it's like sorry, everything's different. And now uh, your mentions are destroyed. Um, yes. I want to ask because of that. You left ESPN. You have jobs in all sorts of places. Last time you were on the second appearance, we actually talked about doing a podcast with The Ringer. And um, at the time, Bill Simmons had made some comments about um, lacking diversity in his workforce there. Um, as, as you're looking around at all the spaces in which you work now, you are in charge of a la carte picking up jobs and, and opportunities. How difficult is it in, in this landscape to to care about the principles of those you work with and for, because you and I probably lost a lot of money because of that. <laughs> right. I, uh, yeah. Well, I will say this. I don't, you do have to lower your expectations in some, like, I don't expect them to be exactly like mine, like right. that high of a level. Right. But there's just certain stuff we can't have. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and mostly what I, think about now with the relationships, the business relationships I have is, okay, inevitably, I'm going to say something that's going to generate a lot of You're going to be ahead of your time. Again. I'm going to be ahead of my time. <laughs> Officially, I'm going to yes. be ahead of my time, right? So when this happens, what's going to be your response? Mm -hmm. And that determines a lot. Like this, the Spotify relationship, all I can tell people, it's complicated. Yes, on one hand, they have Joe Rogan. I don't know Joe Rogan. I'm not here for Joe Rogan. Like he's terrible. All right. Yeah. He irresponsibly uses his platform all the time. But the way Spotify operates is that they, you're just, you know, it's like the McDonald's corporation. They just lend out franchises. Right. Right. So maybe it would be a different conversation if they had ever come to me and said, you know what, you can't say that, but they let Joe Rogan say whatever. Right. And that would be different. Right. Or, you know, in their minds, they're just like, hey, we're just the platform. Yes, we will clean up what we can and do. But other than that, it's out of our hands. Right. They have given me the same treatment. Right. So if that were different, I'd say, OK, we got a problem here. But we don't. And then on top of that, with me developing this podcast network for black women, that's more important than Joe Rogan. Yeah. I mean, it, it wouldn't have made any sense for me to end the relationship with Spotify which, you know, would have been very costly, one. And two, um, wanting to make sure this network got off the ground was very important to me. I'm not going to walk away from that for somebody I don't know. Okay. Right. Well, that's you know? the conflict, and, right? It's like right. they're standing in your principles and then there's letting all the people without them 
rush past you and above you and beyond you and get paid for not giving a shit. And it's not just about it. There are lines that have to be drawn clearly. Mm -hmm. Yes. But there are a whole lot of principled people who are left with no platform. Yes. And then the people who get the loudest plat, the loudest microphone are the ones who don't give a shit. And so it's always that balance, which is tough. Well, and I had to think about that too. And, you know, I I know some people will say, well, if that's the case, why did you leave ESPN? Well, Mm -hmm. This is the difference. It's that it wasn't about um, so much. I mean, I could have stayed at ESPN. I had three more years left at, at, on my contract. Like that would that would not have been an issue. It was about the fact that I knew that I had more to say in different spaces, and being there wasn't going to allow me to do it. It felt constricting to be mm-hmm. there. Like it doesn't feel constricting for me to be at the Atlantic or Spotify right. or whatever. I can pretty much say what I want to say, right? right? And that's not to to even suggest I have something so earth shattering that it <laughs> needs to, but I can do it without some of the other corporate politics that I would have had to deal with at ESPN. I could pretty much blast the NFL into oblivion at the Atlantic. <laughs> Why? Because they do not have a business relationship right. with the NFL. So right. there is no concern on my part like oh if i say this if i go too hard at the nfl about this then i don't know i don't know how that's gonna how that's gonna play out and and work and so um especially since i'd already been through the experience of being suspended because of something i said about the nfl right Right. so how that went yeah exactly so the i think now when i'm forming relationships i'm not we don't have to agree we have to be aligned you know what I mean? And you have to and feel so, free and authentic in the space. Because ultimately that's what deal with that, happened at good. ESPN. We talked about that last time you were on was the mm-hmm. the 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 reckoning that came at SportsCenter mostly came because it was a desire not to let you be who you were. We're going to hire you for this, but then keep you from being that. And I think um, that ultimately makes sort of those situations untenable regardless of the other issues. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do you like most about what you're doing now? Because last time we spoke, you had just gotten married mm-hmm. and you had recently, fairly recently left ESPN. You were just embarking out there. Now you've had a whole bunch of different opportunities and jobs and shows over the last couple of years. What do you like best about it? What I love is the fact that when um, an opportunity comes in, it's only one email. It's me. (laughs) There is no kicking it upstairs. There is no let me go see. There is none of that. I just respond yes or no, or my assistant responds yes or no. Mm -hmm. And that's it. I don't have to run it past anybody. And it's that freedom is kind of invaluable. The other thing that I really like about this part, um, you know, uh, of this stage, this season that I'm that I'm in in my career uh, is that I do get to cherry pick you know, certain projects. I mean, I, I got to hustle like everybody else. Don't get me wrong. But the things that I'm involved with, I'm super passionate about. And that feels good to know that you're pouring into something 
Mm. Um, something that you feel like is really meaningful, like, you know, executive producing this Colin Kaepernick uh, 30 for 30 documentary is super meaningful because um, people know I personally feel about what he went through in his life and career. And now I get a chance to work with Spike Lee, which is great. And uh, of course, um, you know, Colin and I, we were friendly. We were not friends, you know, when he asked me to executive produce, which says a lot about you know, him and, and his integrity and, and, and who he is. And so getting a chance to like really, really get to know him, um, him and his partner, Nessa, has been really phenomenal. And so I, I, even though, uh, and even with Spotify, even though there are times where we, you know, disagree and it's, it's, uh, it's kind of the usual push and pull that you expect in a creative environment. You know, the fact that we've launched the first two podcasts on the Unbothered Network is very important to me. And knowing what we have coming down the pike, it's like, oh, wow, I really got a chance to do something that is groundbreaking, that is legacy building, not my, for my own legacy, but for the legacies of, of so many, um, you know, different Black women out there who haven't been in a position to be amplified or heard. And even though some days I'm like, this company gonna kill me. <laughs> like It's, like, it's gonna be the death of me, I tell yeah. you. Even though there are days like that, it's that the rewards when they come are just so much more gratifying. Well, that's always been a big part of who you are is, is uh, reaching down and lifting up and looking around and seeing people that you thought were deserving. Um, so I'm not surprised you're, you're using your platform to do that. Uh, we're out of time, which means one last time. We have to do the thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. Didn't expect the kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> and while you've done it before, I believe some of the questions are different. Plus, I like to uh, remind people later that their that their answers change with the times, which shows that evolution we talked about. Uh, number one, all of your current jobs are canceled, and so are the industries. What job do you do instead? Ooh. Well, I'm I'm too old to say stripper and I'm married now. So <laughs> I'm sure there's a place. Me. I'm sure there's a place I mean, that'll take you. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Uh I think what I would do is um I would try to I would try to teach. Cool. Yeah. That's yeah. that's what I would do. I would try to teach. No, or manage a bowling alley. Oh, okay. Is, Are you a good bowler? Alley. I know you I know I am you a good bold in your youth, but have you kept I it did. up? Oh yeah, I got my own ball and shoes. Come on now. Okay, I'm okay. from the Midwest. You know, I know. Out. I was gonna say. So does my <laughs> husband. He's from Wisconsin. So yeah. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Well, <laughs> I wrote about it in the book. When you come home and your mother is sitting there with your diary, in which you have cussed her thoroughly out, that's still in the top five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, and, and probably, probably that car accident, if you could remember it. Yes, if I could. But you know yeah. what? Got to be honest. Might put the diary. (laughs) (laughs) There was no control in the car accident. The uh, you were facing your mom head on, like ready. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Mm, I could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. Oh, rapping. Oh, nice. Yeah, I would love to. I would love to have been. You know, I can mimic because yeah, songs that I like. But I was like, I'd love to like actually be like a good rapper, like yeah. writing a rap and being in a studio and being able to flow. That'd be awesome. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? 
Viola Davis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be Davis. a good one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Her her memoir is exceptional. I'm not. I haven't shocked. read it. Oh, but you know what? I don't read it. Do the audio book. She just got nominated for a Grammy for her. Oh, audiobook. I remember seeing it's, that. Okay. Yeah, it's spectacular. Okay. Uh, number five. What's your most meaningless biggest pet peeve? <laughs> uh, hmm. I I hate when people scrape their fork against their teeth. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah, like and they terrible. people do it accidentally, and it's, it's like I, it's no. like I, and once I hear the clanking, I can't unhear it. Mm-hmm. Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? <laughs> I don't know if I can repeat that story. I'm yeah, like, I think oh. you can. Listen, you started the show six years ago or whatever it was with the strip club baby shower. I think you need to close with whatever this story is. Uh, no, well, well, okay, well. <laughs> it's, I, I was. It, it's going to be embarrassing because I shared, but it was embarrassing when it when it happened. So, me and my husband, we have a code word that's called Alaska, right? Mm-hmm. And this code word means a very specific thing. It goes back to when we actually were physically in Alaska. He had a work assignment there. I tagged along. I'd never been in Alaska. I was like, cool, go to Anchorage, check off a state. I'm sure I'd never get to. It's in the bitter cold. I think it's like January. So the hotel staff, they recommended a restaurant, a breakfast place to go to. And they're like, it's great. Go. We're like, cool. We go to the breakfast place. It's outstanding. All good. And we were just going to explore Anchorage, right? To see what there was to see around there. And we're leaving. And I was like, "Mm, I think I got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) And he's like, why don't you just go here? And I was like, no, let's go back to the hotel. I I Uh really got to go. I take my time with this. Yeah. So you know what I'm saying? I need a little little me time. I need a little me time. Mm -hmm. So he's like, oh, he's like, okay, got it. And because when he said, like, why don't you just use it here? I just looked at him like, yeah. are you insane? Okay. Mm-hmm. So we get in the car and the hotel may be five minutes away. It feels like it's 55 minutes uh-huh. away because I'm like, oh, uh-huh. man, it is a drum line going on in my stomach at this point. <laughs> right. So I'm just like, all right. So we get there. My husband has a really good sense of humor. It's why I love him. But he played too much. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... We go and we pull up in the hotel and I'm thinking he's going to drop me at the front door so I can, because we're on the top floor of this hotel. He does not. He instead, and it's a lot of snow on the ground because it's anchored. He instead decides to not pull into a parking spot, back into a parking spot. And the whole time he's doing that, he's smiling at me because he knows exactly what he's doing. And I was like, what are you doing? I told you I had to use the bathroom. And he was like, oh, oh, I didn't really know it was that serious. And I was like, my man, yes, it's that serious. (laughs) I had jumped out of the car and I get into, you know, the hotel lobby. And I was like, I got two choices. (laughs) Either I can try to make it to this top floor or Mm -hmm. I'm going in this public restroom. Mm -hmm. I chose option B and I went to the public restroom. And after I'm done, after the drum line has been released Mm -hmm. from my stomach, I go up to our room and he was like, where you been? I was like, I had to go on the first floor because your ass was playing around. (laughs) (laughs) And he is, you would think he would be apologetic. When I tell you this man was laughing so very hard. And he was like, no, for real, I'm sorry. He was like, I honestly did not know you had to go that bad. And I was like, yes. So many cups of coffee I had. Are you kidding me? Right, right. So after that. Our code word became Alaska. So I'll, I'll be like, you know, if we're somewhere, I'll be like, Alaska, babe. That's smart. <laughs> he knows ex- That's he knows very what smart. I mean. If I had to guess, you censored the story and you, in fact, pooped your pants. And then you, 
decided halfway through. I'm not telling Sarah Spain on this podcast that I poop my pants. So it's just going to be the word, which Sarah, let me just you'll tell just you. Have, you'll just have to wonder. I know a lot of people who have pooped their pants. I'm not saying any names. I'm just saying that would that story to be a little bit more extreme and involve you pooping your pants in the lobby and not making it up to the room? You would not be. I, I absolutely. I, I swear on my mama. I made it to the bathroom. I don't believe you. Number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Other than being honest about the time you shit your pants. (laughs) Well, the thing I probably most um, like to improve is, well, in particular in relationship to to my husband. And I don't know if it's in, you know, maybe you have thoughts on this, but marriage just has made me extraordinarily sensitive. And I don't actually like to be that necessarily that sensitive. But it's like the whole world of Twitter could be cussing me out all in my mentions and I won't say anything. But if he takes like a slightly sharper tone, I'm like ready to fall apart. You know, <laughs> not that it happens that often. And I'm yeah. like, wow, I, I got to figure out like, it's a good thing because that means that he obviously means a lot. What he thinks means a lot. And especially, yeah. you know, as it relates to me, but I was just like, wow, just wish I was so damn sensitive. Right. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think we, as we all know, there are certain tones you will only take with your with your significant other and that is a sign of how close you are but it's also a sign of like spending every freaking second together all the time (laughs) and and just like losing your shit sometimes um number eight any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party who is it um probably oh uh mary j blige oh it's a good one yeah mary j number nine what would you consider your biggest failure um, not winning the city championship, uh, in high school and in softball. Like we, we finished second to a team that mm. had been kicking our ass for three years. And, uh, we, we lost the, what would have allowed us to tie for, um, for the title. We lost, uh, we had the bases loaded. We were down by two and, and we lost. Oh, yeah. That's... So that's the only time I've ever cried over a sporting event. <laughs> oh, that is not the case for me. Uh, number, <laughs> number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, Funny. People think I'm so serious and I hate No, you're that. very funny. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, humorous, funny or humorous, um, bold and unapologetic. I love it. What about unbothered? Not always. Not with your husband. I <laughs> know. Yeah, right? <laughs> Mel Hill is unbothered, except when except it comes to Except when it comes. That's a whole different podcast. Yeah. Um, Jamel, thank you for coming on. Thank you for starting and potentially maybe might be, could be probably closing uh, this chapter. You're the best. Yeah, I appreciate you. That's what she said. <laughs> oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, and everything in between. Sometimes I'll tell you a story. Sometimes I'll tell you what to read, watch, listen to. Sometimes I'll complain about something. Really, whatever's on my mind. And what's on my mind this week is first, obviously, you should read Uphill. Duh. Also, you should go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe or follow That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Why, you ask, if this could be the end? Well, I think it matters now more than ever to have those five stars and those reviews because hopefully... 
Lots of great reviews and comments will help me keep the pod going here or elsewhere. So that's what she said. Five stars. Nice review. Follow. Subscribe. Show your love, please. And while you're missing this pod, I offer up some suggestions of others. My two favorites right now, don't miss an episode, are Smartless and We Can Do Hard Things. Great interviews, life lessons, and they both have that heart that I've tried to bring to every episode of this podcast. Hopefully, I'll be talking to you soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the pod. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. (laughs) 